Good morning. How you doing? Grab your Bibles and turn to uh, New Testament. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians this morning, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 6. And um, we are in a study called Christian Worldview. We've been here the last five weeks. We have been laying a foundation of why, as followers of Jesus Christ, we believe the things that we believe. And we've looked at topics like um, who God is and who we are and the issue of sin and the nature of salvation. And then last week I preached at Grand Haven and um, I believe Taylor was here preaching on the authority of Scripture. These are kind of the foundational things that we as Christians believe. So as we've been going through this study on Christian worldview... All of this has been laying a foundation of why we believe what we believe. This week, we shift gears, and we're going to be talking about not just the foundation, but the practices, how a follower of Jesus Christ is to live in light of the things that he believes. And the first thing that we're going to talk about in this is an area that where our worldview kind of um, is in conflict with what you will find is the majority opinion outside the walls of this church, what our culture embraces, what our culture holds dear. And the topic that we're talking about this morning is human sexuality. If you're keeping notes, how many of you guys keep notes fill in the blanks? Just raise your hand. Um, I went a little psycho this week. Did you see that? Like, like I have tried all summer, like the last few messages, I've only had like four or five blanks, like four main points and a blank in the big idea. And I just saved it all up for this week for reasons unknown. So obviously I've got a guess a lot to say. So just kind of hang with me. I apologize for uh, all of the blanks if you're going to attempt, because I probably won't even say half the things that go in the blanks. But if you're going to keep notes, let me start with this. The first thing is the big idea, which is this. Sexuality is where worldviews collide. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm not naive to... Um, what's going on in culture. We're, we're a country that has a, has a primary freedom. We embrace um, freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And, and I'm allowed to say anything in this room because of freedom of religion uh, that I want to say. And, and our culture embraces this idea of freedom of speech unless the things that you're saying they disagree with and then you get canceled. <laughs> That's just the nature of the culture that we live in today. And I also understand that I'm preaching in, in the backdrop of culture as many have embraced what some refer to as critical race theory and the fact that I stand up here and uh, I'm male and I'm white and I'm old and I'm affluent and I'm Christian means that my opinion doesn't matter anyways, that, that I really shouldn't be listened to. And I understand that we're in this weird backdrop of time that whether you go back and watch old episodes of um, Seinfeld or The Office, things that were funny 10, 15, 20 years ago, you can't even talk about today because it'll be socially offensive. I watched this week uh, an NFL quarterback get fired, not for things that he recently said, but for things that he said a decade ago. And I'm not endorsing or excusing anything that he said. It's just that I'm not sure how well this message is going to age. And uh, I understand in saying some of the things that I have to say this morning, um, I'm probably um, giving up any opportunity that I would have to run for political office, which isn't a huge sacrifice because I don't want to run for political office. 
but I understand that some of the things that I'm saying are swimming against the tide of what our culture believes, and I'm not rattled. The only thing that rattled me was after the nine o'clock service. Well, if you were going to teach on human sexuality, what's the worst thing you would want somebody to say as their first comment on your message? My daughter came up to me in tears after I preached the nine o'clock message, and she said, you just teach, taught a message on human sexuality with your fly down. <laughs> so that's a true story, and um, I think I'm in better shape this morning so, so, or for the 11 o'clock. So here's all I'm going to tell you. It already hasn't started well, and, and I understand that some of the things that I say um, might be um, different than what you do here outside these walls. But here's, here's what I want to tell you. Um, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what the culture embraces. God's word stands the test of time. And as we look at this area of human sexuality, what I want to accomplish this morning, please give me some grace, huge topic, very little time. I want to open up God's word. I want to set a foundation of what he says on this topic and why he says it. I want to contrast God's word to what our culture is embracing, what it's endorsing. I want to talk about that a little bit, and then I want to give us maybe three different ways that we can respond as followers of Jesus Christ and how I believe we're, respond, we're called to respond to um, this conflict. So the first thing I want to do is I want to pull three themes from the text. If you're keeping notes, I'm going to pick it up in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. First point is this, changed people change. Look what it says in verse 9. It says, or do you, do, or, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Whew, I'm glad I'm not unrighteous. But we got a problem, right? Romans tells us that there's none righteous. No, not one. Paul gets real specific then. He gives a list. He goes, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11, and such were some as you, and such were some of you. I mean, as I look back on that list, I can find myself. Idolatry, there's been times I've put things above my pursuit of God. Whole thing changes in the middle of verse 11, but you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. I love that this passage begins with this text because it starts at the gospel. And, and, and what Paul is telling the church that in spite of some of your past and in spite of some of the culture that you find yourself engulfed in, despite of past decisions, you need to understand something. You've been changed. And by the way, you're passive in that. You were sanctified. You were washed. You were the object. The one doing the work is the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a great reminder as we begin this study that all of us have been the recipients of grace. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a recipient of grace. Each of us are on different or at different points in our journey in following Jesus Christ. All of that said, please see this in the text. What he is saying is you were this way, but this has happened, which means if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, you should be able to see that you're changing, that you've been transformed. 
The proof that you've been saved is not that you can remember sometime back when you were a kid that you went through a confirmation class or you prayed a prayer. That's how our journey begins. But to know that you're on the journey, the biblical proof of that is enduring faith and fruitfulness. Followers of Jesus Christ, because of the gospel, changed people changed. Here's the second thing, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 6. You belong to God. Look what the text says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What Paul's saying here is he's saying, since we're not under the law, since the law isn't the thing that can save us, the question isn't lawful or unlawful. What is my primary pursuit? And a good question that we could ask ourselves at this point in the message is this. Am I currently dominated by a desire other than following Jesus? And then the context is very going to quickly going to shift in Paul's discussion here to the idea of being dominated by sex. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And then he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a member with a prostitute? Never. Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We're going to talk about this concept of oneness in just a little bit. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Listen, what he's saying in verses 19 and 20 is you're not your own. You're owned by somebody else. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're owned by Jesus Christ. And and here's the issue. In our context, in America, when we look back on our national history, this idea of being owned by somebody else, it has baggage to it. It's not something that we want to think about. We want to forget that part of our past, concentrate on freedom today. But the reality is from a biblical standpoint, Each one, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, you're owned by somebody or something. It says in Romans 6, 22, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. So you were set free from being owned by sin and you are now owned by God. It's one or the other. You're owned by something. Are you a slave of God or are you a slave of sin? And when we realize that we've been bought with a price, that we have been the recipients of grace, that should say something. That should transform and help frame our identity. And our identity should impact our activity. Listen, we're not our own. You do not belong to you. You do not get to decide what is best for you. And I know even saying that in the context of the church of summers, you're saying, I don't like that. Hearing something way better from culture, I don't agree with that. Listen, you can decide whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, but here's the only thing that I would say. If you don't understand that you were bought with a price and you're owned by God, don't claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You're confusing those that need the gospel. 
a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not your own. And then here's the third thing. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Third point is this. Sex is not about you. Verse 1, it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So Paul is answering in chapter 7 questions that the Corinthian church wrote to him. Listen to what he says. He says, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, sex isn't even about you. It's for your spouse. Now, a couple things implied in the section that I just read. Sexual temptation, it's a real thing. But then we look at Paul's instruction, and we're looking at one of the most misunderstood and misapplied passages in the entire New Testament. Too often, I have seen this text used by a husband or a wife to demand sex of their spouse whenever they want it. See, look, it says it right in 1 Corinthians 7 missing the whole context of which Paul is writing. It's not about you. First and foremost, your concern should be for your spouse. And it gives you a little bit of an indication of how messed up our view of sex is when we take this passage and turn it into a selfish expression rather than the selfless expression that was intended by Paul Paul's intent, put your spouse's needs above your own. If you've been at Harvest any time, hopefully you know this. We have a very quick, easy-to-remember definition of love. You be for me. You be for me. Just that simple. And by the way, that doesn't just carry into how we conduct ourselves during the day. That attitude needs to carry itself into the bedroom as well. Your needs before my needs. And please understand, men and women, we just approach sex differently. Because of the way that we're attracted, the way we respond. For guys, we're more visually attracted to, to women. Women, it's more relational. So what happens with that is, for a guy, let me just kind of explain. You can wake up in the morning, you oversleep your alarm, you get to work late, boss yells at you. On your way home, car breaks down, you end up getting home late, dinner's cold, dog bites you as you walk into the, in the door, okay? You have sex, pretty good day. That's just how we're wired. <laughs> you know it's true, right? Okay, for a woman, often sex is the cherry on top, the whipped cream on top, the chocolate syrup on top, the ice cream of the Sunday of a good day. We approach these things differently, and sometimes I just wonder how much of the conflict that we counsel through in the marriages in this room that you guys navigate your way through, if you viewed sex as not about you but about your spouse, that primarily you're there to meet her needs and she's there to meet your needs. I think sometimes that works out way better than the way that we've twisted our approach to sex. Sex is a way of giving yourself to another person exclusively, fully, and permanently. And we've turned it into taking something from someone fleetingly, temporarily, and cheaply. So 
as followers of Jesus Christ, just from the text, we are to live changed lives. We are to view ourselves as belonging to God, and sex should not be our selfish pursuit. Now, again, if you're keeping notes, I'm going to talk a minute about the historical Christianities or Christians' historical sexual ethic. First point is this, sex is a gift designed for marriage to promote oneness. Cal, I was sitting as he preached here last uh, night in the five o'clock service. I stole this definition from him as I was sitting in the balcony. He took a moment to describe historical Christianity's view or worldview as it relates to sex. Here's what he said. It says, sex is designed for a covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Any sexual expression or activity outside of that context is viewed as sinful and outside of God's design. And please understand, when I say historical, what I mean that was taught in the Old Testament, that was taught in the New Testament, that was taught by Jesus, that was taught by Paul, that was taught by Peter, that was taught by the early church fathers, that was held to be true as the early church. It was in the early um, statements and declarations of the foundation of faith. It has been held through the churches throughout church history, and it is only in recent years that this has been questioned. This is the historical and accepted view of Christianity. Genesis is clear that a man and women are created in the image of God and that he creates them male and female. Genesis 1.27 says exactly that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The notion that we have the right to choose our sexuality is an attempt to usurp God's authority and a denial of what is true and real. Simply stated, your sex is above your pay grade. That's something that God chooses by design. Genesis 2.18 goes on and says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. This idea of marriage and the needs behind it, they go well beyond sexual attraction and our sexual desires and appetites. It was primarily for relationship. It was primarily for companionship. It's interesting, as you get into the New Testament, Paul will write a letter to the Ephesians. He'll say the same thing in his letter to the church in Colossae, that actually our marriage even goes beyond our own needs. It is designed in such a way that as the outside world looks at our marriages, it's a reflection of the character and nature of God within the Trinity. That's a pretty big thing. The goal of all of this is oneness. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Sex is a component of that relationship, but it is not the sole component of that relationship. Kristen and I have written an entire book of the theme of describing what does it mean to example biblical oneness in a marriage. And when I say Kristen and I wrote a book, that's Kristen, capital K, I, small I, okay? She did most of the writing, but we've got a book on this topic. God's word has a lot to say as it relates to oneness. And our world has this flipped. Sex becomes the predominant pursuit rather than a component of the oneness that God was trying to provide for. I would define oneness simply as this, a relationship that reflects the character of God. It involves the emotional, it involves the spiritual, it involves the relational and physical oneness. Here's a second thing again, if you're keeping notes, the result of God's design is intimacy, joy, safety, and flourishing. Right after he says, 
that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and that they should become one flesh. The next thing he says, next verse, Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Our relationship with our spouse is designed by God to have a unique intimacy, a level which is not shared with anyone outside of the marriage relationship. Listen, if you find yourself right now in a deeper emotional and, and, and intimacy with one of your coworkers, Find another job. If, if man, if, if your relationship and your um, closeness with your mama is closer and you will share things with your mom that you wouldn't share with your wife, dude, leave and cleave. That intimacy, that level of closeness is designed by God to be shared within the marriage context. 1 Corinthians 6.18, we just read this, flee from sexual immorality, did some work on that word flee. Do you know what it means? Run away. And then he gives you the reason. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Here's what, you need to understand this, every sin is not the same. Well, I'll be careful there, David, because I thought a sin is a sin is a sin. Well, it is. Any sin condemns us in front of a holy God. It's fully deserving of his wrath. But different sins have different consequences. They bear on our lives differently. And what Paul is warning is he's saying, flee sexual immorality because this is one of those sins that will own you. It will define in your mind who you are. It has the ability to set your identity. And he's saying, run away. This is a sin that someone commits against his own body. So, so would you eat a food if you knew that from then on it would dull your sense of taste? No, you would never do that. Would you sear intentionally the tips of your fingers so that you would lose your sense of feel? No, you would never do that. And what God is saying is he's saying, flee sexual immorality. Because when you do this, it's going to weaken or dullen your ability to enjoy sex to its fullest, the way that I intended you to enjoy it. So if I can be blunt for a minute... Don't rob the intimacy of your marriage, the joy of your physical relationship with your spouse by looking at porn, by fantasizing about the person at work or at the gym or on TV, by becoming intimate socially, I mean, physically, emotionally, or spiritually with someone other than your spouse. What God's saying is you're destroying yourself when you do these things. And then a third thing, all people are called to submit their sexuality to God. And if you're keeping notes again, I've got in the middle of my notes this, this central question. What all of this boils down to is this, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Each one of us, because we belong to God, we are called to submit ourselves to his instruction as it, as it regards our sexuality. And some would argue, but I'm attracted to people of my same sex. Well, here's, here's a clue. I'm attracted to the opposite sex. Both of us are required to submit those attractions into the fabric of how God is designed and the barriers that he's set for our sexual relations. This is not an attempt to vilify a sin that I'm not or don't struggle against. This is true for all of us. 
And listen, don't be fooled. The culture will say we should be able to enjoy sex without boundaries. Everyone has boundaries. The sad thing is what our culture has done, it has limited the boundaries. It's basically down to just age and consent. You can sleep with anyone as long as they're of age and as long as they're agreeable to it. Those should be the only boundaries. That's what our culture is putting there. But there are boundaries. And the question that we need to ask is who gets to set the boundaries? Is it up to each one of us? Is it up to each culture and society to decide for themselves? Or maybe there's a better way. Maybe the creator of sex, maybe the God of the universe, he's set some boundaries believing that he is for our good, our joy, our happiness. And maybe we should let him have input on what these boundaries are. Maybe we should follow what he says is our best way to enjoy the very sexual relationships that he's designed Again, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So it's kind of a very, very quick Christian historical worldview on sex. Let me talk about the other side of this with that as a backdrop. Let me contrast that to what our culture has embraced. And I'm calling this the secular humanist, humanism or humanistic sexual ethic. Now, we've been talking about sex, or, uh, secular humanism. For several weeks, we put a definition on the board a couple of weeks ago. Let me remind you of what we're talking about. It's this, the belief that humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without belief of God. Secular humanism embraces the idea that we all get to decide what is right, true, good, or bad for ourselves. And the goal of secular humanism is that we discover the best version of ourselves, self-fulfillment in the fleeting moments of our existence. Here's some of the principles that they embrace. That personal autonomy and freedom are the highest values. Our culture has embraced this idea that each of us gets to choose based off what I believe will make me most happy. The rules as it relates to sex, who I have sex with, when I have sex, how I have sex, the context in which we have sex, be it married or not married, be it opposite sex, same sex, be it committed relationship or casual encounter. The only thing that is offensive to the viewpoint of secular humanism is if I introduce into the discussion an absolute right or wrong. They don't have any problem with me believing in a God who has set the boundaries for sex. And if I live by those boundaries, that's not going to create an issue. Where it becomes an issue is when I say God has set up some things that are universally true about sex and they apply not just to me but to you because now I've stepped on their free Freedom of expression. Like, like now I've got conflict. Now I'm in a battle. If you want to follow whatever you think your God set has the rules or the boundaries, that's fine with you. Just don't try to apply those standards to me. Here's the second thing. They, secular humanism will try to divorce the physical from the emotional and spiritual. And, and please hear this. What they're saying is let's make sex an activity. Independent of relationship. Cal used the two words last night, hygienic recreation. Don't really like those words, but I get his point. That we have reduced it to an encounter void of the emotional and spiritual connect with the other person. Now, this is nothing new. If you go back all the way to the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there was a group of philosophers, there was a group of people who believed that 
um, everything physical was evil, and they separated the physical world and universe from the spiritual universe. They were called Gnostics. They believed in something called Gnosticism or dualism. And the idea is what we're seeing in our culture is there is this divorce that we can just do the physical activity of sex without having the relational, the emotional, and the spiritual aspects of intimacy attached with it. This is rampant within our culture. This is why so many couples will allow themselves in a moment of weakness to experience a sexual intimacy long before they've developed the commensurate emotional and spiritual intimacy that God designs, which is why there are so many times I'm watching couples break up in a dating relationship and it feels way more like a divorce than it just just a a breakup because they become spiritually intimate and they are experiencing a pain that God never intended for them. Here's the third thing. Your sexual identity becomes your primary identity. This is what really scares me about what our culture has chosen to embrace. And this is where I think 1 Corinthians 6 is so true. When we commit sexual immorality, when we identify ourselves by our sexual preferences, we end up hurting ourselves. Anytime you let your identity become your activity, uh, careful, you're in deep weeds. Let me give you some examples. All of us have witnessed a professional athlete who after he gets to the end of his career and, and he retires, he loses himself. Away from the spotlight, away from the fans, away from the thing that has been his entire identity, he finds himself lost. We've all known and met parents who their entire identity is being parents to their kids. And then you hit that moment where the last kid leaves home and they can't find themselves. They don't know who they are because all of a sudden the kids have left home. Or maybe they've stayed home living in the basement. That's a different problem, but either way, okay? The identity, the guy who works his entire career and then retires and can't enjoy his retirement years because in quitting his activity, he's lost his identity. And the sad thing for me is it relates to secular humanism and sexuality. All of a sudden, our sexual preferences are the way that we identify ourselves. And what's lost in this is the gospel. Is it really healthy that our main identity is based off who we sleep with, who we're attracted to? Does Facebook really need 14 categories of gender? And then in the most secular humanistic move of all time... On top of the 14, there's an other. Identify yourself however you see fit. It's crazy. And I'm not sure it's healthy. Okay, next point. Let me just state this and declare this as fact. Secular humanism has won the cultural war. Let me say that again. Sexual humanism has won the cultural war. The very idea that I would leave this room and go into our community, and as we talk about sexual issues, and I were to go, well, what does the Bible say? It's laughable outside these walls. You guys understand that. The Bible isn't viewed as an authority. We have lost the cultural war to sexual humanism. To hold a Christian or a biblical worldview means that you were viewed as repressive, non-progressive or out of date, judgmental, And then when you consider how many churches and Christian denominations are dealing with sexual scandals of their own right now, you're going to be considered hypocritical. 
So to hold a Christian worldview as it relates to sexuality, man, we've lost that war. You're judgmental, you're repressive, you're out of date, and you're hypocritical. God's viewed as a killjoy, limiting or repressing our sexual appetites rather than a God who is about our joy. And so we've come to a crisis as followers of Jesus Christ. We've come to a decision point in our culture. How do we respond to this tension? How do we deal with the clash of worldviews between a, a, a Christian worldview on sex and our culture's view on sex? And the answer supported by data is Christians are punting their convictions. A, a polling company by the name of Pew Research that does studies and polls on this type of thing. In August 2020, they, reduced, or they, they uh, released the results of a study that they did on people's attitudes towards sex outside of marriage. And what they found is people believe that sex between unmarried adults in a committed relationship, 79% of our culture or the non-Christians felt that that was fine. 50%, 57% of Christians agreed. Same question just changed. How about between unmarried couples, not in a committed relationship, but in a casual relationship? 83% of unbelievers said that's okay. Just seems weird to me that that's a higher percentage than in a committed relationship. But what's more amazing to me is 50% or 50 of Christians agreed. So the majority of people claiming to be Christians have embraced secular, or secular humanism as their viewpoint on sexuality. And please hear me denominations, Presbyterians, RCA, the Reformed Church of America, this weekend. I think they're meeting in Phoenix. They're deciding there's going to be a vote on what they do with the issue of same-sex clergy and same-sex relationships. Will they endorse it or will they not? And no matter which way that, voice, uh, that vote goes, you're going to split that denomination. It's gone. CRC, struggling with the same issue. United Methodists, Episcopal Church. These denominations have either punted on the biblical view of marriage or in crisis over these issues. But this isn't about denominations. It's about the people in this room. Because very different than when I started this church 11 years ago and when we first began meeting, almost everyone in this room is feeling the tension in their families, in their extended families, with their neighbors, with their co-workers, or with their friends. Do I attend that wedding? How do I respond to this? Do I embrace that? How do I respond? All of you guys are put in the middle of the tension because of where our culture has gone just in the last 11 years on this issue. It's interesting, USA Today published just a couple years ago in April of 2019, an editorial piece by an opinion columnist by the name of Oliver Thomas. Listen to what he says. I think it's interesting. He said, this is a sad thing is happening in America. The church is killing itself. And, and, and what he's referencing here now is the sexual revolution, the idea of being able to have sex however you want. He says, a great revelation has occurred that is bringing joy and happiness to millions but it is being met with resistance and retrenchment from many of my colleagues inside the church. Then he makes this conclusion. He says, churches will continue hemorrhaging members until we face the truth. Being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. So the question is, 
Is he right? Have we missed some great revolution that is bringing joy and happiness to millions of people? So a definitive statement, we've lost the cultural war. Can I give you another one? Secular humanism isn't working. And that's my, not my opinion. It is again argued by the facts. Cigna, that corporation, an insurance corporation amongst other things, they issue an annual report on the state of our country on their 2020 2020 U.S. report, here's what they found. It was entitled Loneliness in the Workplace. They found that 61% of Americans described themselves as lonely, up 13% just in the past two years from 2018. The, the, the jump from 18 to 20 shouldn't surprise you on the loneliness scale. What happened between those two years? COVID, right? Isolation, social distancing, all the joys we've been experiencing. So the jump of 13% really shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us is three-fifths of Americans identify themselves as lonely? NCBI, that's the National, National Center for Biotechnology. Again, these aren't Christian organizations. Did a study, and what they found is that casual sex is associated with psychological distress. These distresses include anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, reduced life satisfaction, and sexual regret. Laura Klinger, she attended Grand Valley State University. They put out an annual uh, report, as I understand it, the College Student Affairs Leadership. She wrote in 2016 that students who participated in casual hookups experienced embarrassment, 27%, a decrease in self-respect, one in five, emotional struggles, one in four, and additionally, when she interviewed 200 college students, again, on the campus of Grand Valley State University, what she found is that 78% of female participants and 72% of male participants reported regret about their most recent hookup encounter. Psychology Today, again, obviously not a Christian source, published this article in March of 2018, Four Ways Porn Use Causes Problems. Well, here's one. It doubles the divorce rate. Couples that are engaging in pornography, they're twice as likely to be divorced as those who do not. Here's a scary one. It creates a cycle of loneliness. The article said, pornography use begets loneliness and loneliness begets pornography use. Hey, is it a shocker that as more and more of our culture views pornography, we're seeing stats that say three out of five people in our country are experiencing loneliness. So it doubles the divorce rate. It creates a circle of loneliness. It decreases sexual satisfaction and it increases sexual dysfunction. These are the stats. And, and when you talk about the idea that our culture is embraced, that sex can be had in whatever medium with whoever you want outside the boundaries of marriage, it shouldn't surprise you that this is having a destructive effect on the biblical view of family and of marriage. It's destroying our families. Savingfatherhood.org reports these stats. These are fun. I say that sarcastically. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children who show behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youth in prison come from fatherless homes. 
71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent parents or, or patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. And, and here's the sad thing. Our culture isn't chasing anything different than we as followers of Jesus Christ. We want, we want joy, satisfaction, but what our culture has said is we're going to do it without God. We're going, we want the kingdom, but we don't want to follow the king. And we're going to ignore how God established and designed sex to operate. And we believe we're going to find these same things outside and they're destroying themselves in the process. This should not surprise us. It is a pattern that we see repeat itself. When we deny the existence of God, what we lose is the creator. When we lose the creator, we lose any sense of design. When we lose a sense of design, life has no purpose. When life has no purpose, and when there's no God, there's no accountability. When there's no accountability and there is no God, we have no fear of God. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When we lose our fear of God, we lose wisdom, and we find ourselves in a constant state of confusion and pain. It's inevitable. It's where it always leads. And this statement that a great revelation has occurred that is bringing joy and happiness to millions, it just isn't true. It's not supported by the data. And while secular humanism may have won the war, while many churches and Christians are punting on their convictions, please understand this victory has only led to increased pain. So let me suggest, just in the minutes that I have left, can I suggest a different path? Three things. Here's number one. Three imperatives for us today. Embrace the gospel. Right back to where we started this message. I think we need to understand that we bought a lie. That our culture is selling a lie that too often we've allowed ourselves to believe. And the first thing that we need to do is repent. We need to acknowledge that we belong to God. We need to seek forgiveness. And then we need to do the hard work that the gospel demands. And please let me explain. Too many people in this room, you view yourself through the lens of your sexuality. Callan speaking last night, he made a comment. He goes, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and it was shocking to me how many parents never talk to their kids about sex. And he goes, I think the underlying reason for this in many cases is the fact that parents felt guilty about their own sexual past and they didn't want to be hypocritical and they didn't want to tell their kids to do what I say, not as I did. And what's lost in that is the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. See, this sexual identity, the lens that some would choose to view themselves through their past failures, I'm telling you what, it's laced with guilt and shame. And we need to do the hard work of the gospel. We need to get back to the cross because I don't know anywhere else in the universe that I can take you to unload that guilt and shame. And if you're struggling with this this morning, please hear me. When we take that guilt and shame to the cross and seek God's forgiveness, he declares that we are justified. That doesn't mean that that's not part of our past. It doesn't mean that we're not guilty. But what he's saying is, I paid that price on the cross. It's done. It's gone. It's removed. It's not your identity anymore. You stand justified before a holy God, not because you're worthy, but because I was worthy and I have declared you free. It's not how we, God views you anymore. 
And we are no longer guilty. And the incredible thing about our God is he's demonstrated his love to us through the cross so that when we sin, we fall short. When we feel shame, we don't have to run from him. We can run to him because we know his love is unconditional. How many believers in this room identify themselves right now based off last week's successes and failures as it related to your obedience? It's nonsense. Don't let your identity be stolen by your activity. Get back to the gospel and see yourself as Jesus Christ sees you. And then please, Romans 6, should I continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be. But let your motivation for your obedience be gratitude. It's a whole different approach. Second thing, get off the fence. Being a follower of Jesus Christ today with this clash of worldviews becoming more um, in our face, you are not going to be able to live on the fence much longer and claim to be a Christian and then live a completely different way. You've got to get off the fence on these things. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Putting on Christ, that's the biblical description of living like Christ. Putting on Christ is not one among many jobs a Christian has to do, and it is not a sort of special exercise for the top class. It is the whole of Christianity. Christianity offers nothing else at all. You're either in or you're out. Decide your worldview. Changed people change. He goes on to say, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because I, by it, I see everything else. In essence, what he's saying is, not only am I a follower of Jesus Christ because I believe in Jesus Christ and what he did, everything I do, every decision I made is viewed through that lens. The call is to have a biblical worldview as it relates to our sexuality. And if you're going to do that, let me give you a point two, prepare for the reality of suffering. It's coming. As American believers, we don't get a hall pass on suffering. Part of my job as your pastor is to prepare you for suffering that I believe is coming. And it's going to come right here. This is the front lines. It's our position on biblical sexuality. Because if you hold to it, you're going to leave this room and you're going to be called a bigot. It's coming. Here's all I would say. Throughout the history of Christianity... Christians have suffered a lot worse than being called names. Across our globe right now, Christians are suffering a lot worse than the disdain of the majority of their culture and being called names by culture and being frowned upon by culture and being silenced and canceled by a culture. They're suffering much worse for the cause of Jesus Christ. Like when it comes to suffering, we're not on varsity. You get that, right? We're JV. Prepare for suffering. The gospel's worth it. Jesus is worth it. And then finally, let me just close with this. Follow the example of Jesus. I find it really interesting that Jesus early in his ministry, really his first long public sermon that was recorded, was recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And very early in this first sermon, early in his ministry, listen to what Jesus says. In Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then Jesus actually raises the bar on what it means to be obedient. Over the next couple of verses in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, he'll say, You've heard it said that don't murder. 
But he goes on and says, anyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the same judgment as the murderer. In Matthew 5, verse 27, he says, you've heard it it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who's lusted or looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Like, Like he's raising the bar. He's not backing down from the holiness that the law required. He's just saying, I came to fulfill that. But then what's, What happens next is amazing. You just kind of skip over chapter eight. Look what happens. Just one chapter later in chapter nine. It says, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus' commitment to holiness didn't diminish his compassion for those who held a different worldview, for those who were broken, for those who were lost. And I'll tell you right now, if your theology on this topic causes you to hate people that hold a different view, you're not following Jesus. That didn't come from him. And our call as followers of Jesus Christ is to have the confidence that we serve a king who is for our good, for his glory, and knows best in all things, including human sexuality. And we should have a compassion for those who have embraced a lie, who think differently than us. And we should be a light, not a convictor, a light to the gospel that there can be transformation, that there can be change. That's our mission. That's the gospel. Because Jesus is our Savior, we follow his example, right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Give us a boldness to believe that it is true. Give us the courage to live out what it says. And cloak us in the compassion of your Son. It's in his name we pray, amen.